0: Welcome to I'm So Obsessed, where we talk with actors, artists, and creators about their work, career, and current obsession. I'm your host, Patrick Holland, and today's guest is the filmmaker Leslie Chilcott. She is the award-winning producer of films like Waiting for Superman, An Inconvenient Truth, and An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power. She also directed the documentaries Watson and Code Girl. Her latest project is the documentary series Helter Skelter American Myth on epics the six-part series is a visceral revealing look at charles manson and the manson family it takes on some of the unintentional myths created around manson and his followers leslie discusses finding never-before-seen footage of the manson family while making the series and how their story eerily reflects the political and social issues of today she also tells us about her obsession with wolves and how their protection became a political debate Leslie, I'm so excited that you're able to take some time to talk with us today. Um, I think we should just jump right into your newest or latest project, which is Helter Skelter. Now, the, whole, the, the actual title is Helter Skelter, an American myth. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. Let's do it.
0: All right. So, um, uh, you know what? Let's start with the title. I was actually going to save that for the middle. Um, where does that title come from?
1: When I came to the project, um, it already had its name, Helter Skelter. And um, the book is obviously well known. The phrase meaning, you know, chaos and confusion is also really well known. Um, But I started, you know, in my research process, running across these kind of oversimplified themes, you know, that Charles Manson was this mastermind criminal um, that uh, lorded over a bunch of zombies and um, planned to personally bring about a race war right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that some of the myths, you know, I mean, like, what is a myth, right? Like, it's a folktale that becomes a legend. Um, there's no question that there were unspeakable and horrible murders committed, and that it was done by Manson and, you know, certain family members. So we're, we're not we're not saying anything of that nature. But you have these, these like very convenient talking points that happen. And some people, you know, say, oh, Charlie was a bearded Svengali, you know, and he had answers for everything. And he was this brilliant mastermind. And he wasn't. He was a small time con artist who happened to be in the in the wrong place at the wrong time and was able to get a a bunch of young kids. You know, they were teenagers and early 20 something. um, who were really looking for something and missing something in their lives, and and they fell for it. So that's a long-winded answer. I apologize, but um, no,
0: this is that's a this is a great place to have a long-winded answer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think there's there's unintentional myth creation um, around this story. Police were clueless initially before they figured things out, and there was a lot of filling in the gaps. Um, and then there's there's some uneducated myth creation. You know, um, I often hear that you know. Charlie Manson is the dark side of the 60s or Charlie Manson was the end of the 60s. Well, he was arrested in December of 1969. Like you couldn't Hmm. be more the end of the 60s, you know? So we wanted to do like an archeology span dig and and look at the the social history of what was going on with communal living, sex, hallucinogens, you know, free love, music, protests, all of that. And the Manson family, you know, kind of keeps interrupting.
0: I have so much to follow up on this. I think the the part of it about the myth, I'm so glad you talked about that. I think what I was taken away with is for a a series that is based around that time, largely around Charles Manson, is the fact that we're seeing this footage that uh, is almost fact in a way, because it's him. It's not a portrayal of him. It's not an actor playing him. And I think that's kind of what caught me off guard in, in a really wonderful way, because he is, even what, 60 years later, he is still... In our pop culture, he's he was in two major, uh, fil- or film and a major TV series last year. Yeah, um, and I guess I wonder why. What is the fascination with him?
1: I mean, first, he never answers a question directly. You know, when 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 anybody interviewed him throughout the years, whether they were famous journalists or, um, you know writing for, for smaller magazines, big magazines, TV, you know, he would never answer a question directly. He would respond with like a philosophical abstraction and he would say, what is society? What is a question? You know? And so we tried to use a lot of these outtakes from, from news footage, um, which, which you saw. And we used a lot of him talking from his audio recordings where you know, he was questioning reporters and he was saying, you know, he was like this friendly little guy. Are you having a nice day? Are are, are you pleased with your courts, your court system? And they would say, are you? And he would say, that's your system. It's not mine. I live outside society, you know, and he had this acid rap and this way of talking, you know, LSD was a, a new experience in the late 60s. And, you know, the true free love period was probably only a few months before the darker elements moved in, and Charlie was one of those darker elements. And I think he took a lot of those good ideas, ideas that, that even he probably believed in at one point, and took them to a dark place. Some of the footage is more easily findable than others. Um, we, we went through a lot of um, European sources um, because there was fascination with him at that time from all over the world, so sometimes we got footage from, you know, foreign sources that maybe was was less seen. And then that that's of Charlie uh, specifically. And then we did what I call um, original photography scenes. So I hesitate to call them recreations, even though they're a version of a recreation. <laughs> but, you know, there was someone standing in for the Charlie Manson character, but he was never in focus. You never saw that that wasn't the real guy. You know, it was someone standing in and... The camera may be focused on his hands or the back of his head or so that that you had visuals to go with these stories that the family members and other people um, were revealing. We also have some audio tapes that some reporters of the time used, and uh, they very graciously loaned them to us. And... um, in that first episode, you know, we interview one of the last family members to join, so to speak. She came to the family a matter of days before the Tate and LaBianca murders, and you know, walked into this 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 commune. Charlie picked her up in the in the middle of the night, and she had no idea what she was getting herself into, and she's never spoken before. So we used a lot of uh, we were very very methodical and used a private investigator. Had a great producing staff and, and researchers. And we really tried to plow through as, as much material as we could to try and um, make sense of something that, that doesn't make sense, you know, crimes that have no motive.
0: Even watching it, it's still, and I, I don't mean this as a, to sound like a dig at all, it still doesn't make sense. And you're just like, how did this, because you're looking at like, who would fall for this? Who? How are these people so like enamored and just like how they're under his possession in a way. And I think it's, and I'm sure that even 20 years ago, people would say that.
1: I think anytime there is a murder, it's, it's a tragedy, but sometimes, you know, you hear, oh, okay, well that was horrible what they did. And the reason was this, isn't that bad. And then you put it away. In this particular case, there was, there were no motives behind these sets of murders. And the fact that they were committed by young people under the spell of a cult leader is really inexplicable. And instead of giving Charlie more credit by continuing, you know, by falsely saying that he was such a strong leader, he had the ability to bring about a race war and he was systematically planning for one. It, it turns out not to be true. Did did he believe that he could help contribute to a race war? Maybe. Did he tell his people that so they would be holden to him? Yeah, he did. And But he was not a mastermind, you know. He was a small guy in stature, <laughs> and yeah. he was also a small-time con artist who had a good acid rap for a while. And so we look at the cultural factors, or at least we try to look at the cultural factors in the late 60s that were present and do much more of a, of a social history of the late 60s to attempt to explain why some people might have been charmed by him.
0: Well, and I can't help but relate to things going on today, and I'm not going to name names specifically, but when people are in positions of power and seem to have falsehoods that so many people believe, it's easy to see the parallel there. But at the same time, I wonder if people, there was a film made of today, like a documentary like this, people would see that same parallel. Like, yeah, why are these people following this person?
1: Yeah, I think think you're onto something there. I think that Anytime you give up little bits of yourself to follow someone else's belief system, or they just tell you something and they say it over and over again, and it's not even true, and you just decide, well, they must know, I mean, he's saying it over and over again, that things aren't always black and white. I think Charlie in the beginning and Charlie in the end were two very different people. I don't think that like core group of, of six women initially would have ever fallen for him if he was the Charlie of late 1969 he took them out to spawn ranch. They were isolated. He repeated key phrases. He paid a lot of attention to certain ones and then abused them. He gave them new names. And it's classic cult behavior. I, I think it's important to realize that, that each family member was, was different, came to the family for different reasons. And I think that's a, a horrifying thing to admit, that you could be that much under someone else's influence.
0: And, and you showed that earlier. I think it's in the first episode with him. He's hanging out with um, Dennis Wilson um, mm-hmm. of the Beach Boys, and you—they actually play a song of his. And I'm like, wow, that's actually not bad. It's pretty good. And,
1: <laughs> I had the it, same reaction.
0: <laughs> i just wondering, like that. I, I, again, for all the myth and all the uh, the glorification that sometimes happens with him, uh, there's these moments where it's like, yes, yeah, this is a guy hanging out, and he's just. He's just like, you know, leeching off the other guy, basically.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, Los Angeles was a much open, more open city in the late 60s. I mean, dozens of people were on PCH trying to hitchhike, you know, and it is a fact that Dennis Wilson picked up two family members. And then not long thereafter, Dennis Wilson himself got picked up by Charles Watson who went to Dennis's house and then met the family members, you know, through Dennis Wilson. I mean, it's hard to even grasp that you would pick up strangers and bring them back to your very beautiful, you know, three acre estate. Part of it was the times part of it was that Dennis, you know, was open-minded and it was cool to have an ex convict sitting next to a movie star, sitting next to a record producer, sitting next to a politician. And it was it was very different times. But going back to what you said at the beginning, when I started listening to more of Charlie's music, and there are a couple of songs that, you know, he was a decent lyricist. That was a real surprise. And it helped me to get into the mindset that okay, you know, a couple of people fell for him initially cuz they thought maybe maybe he was going to be a rock star, you know, maybe he had something, you know, and he would he would write lyrics off the top of his head, kind of like a beat poetry or acid rap and <laughs> You know, a a lot of people fell for it and wanted to know more. And they're like, maybe this guy has something, you know, maybe the system has wronged him. He did have a bad childhood, you know, so maybe if things had been different and you start to ask all of those questions. Whereas, you know, two years into the family, he was clearly had gone off the deep end.
0: Obviously, this film was being made before. Uh, pandemic times and yeah. this recent round of protest. But I'm wondering, how do you view what's happening now with what you're showing on, on screen and um, Helter Skelter?
1: It was very important to me to show that, you know, Los Angeles in 1965 had the Watts Rebellion, you know, one of the biggest riots in the history of the U.S. And then, you know, throughout the rest of the 60s, there were about 200 race riots nationwide. Racism was the same curse, you know, in Los Angeles, in Chicago, throughout the nation in the late 60s, that it is now. And in some ways, we've made very little progress. But I think we have to be very careful not to give Charlie that kind of importance. Charlie was racist. And Charlie grew up in the prison system where, you know, certain factions stick together I think what's interesting about that is because there were so many riots going on, it was not hard for him to say to the family, hey, a race riot is coming, because a lot of people believed one was coming. So he used it as a tool. But I think we can't sugarcoat the fact that he was racist.
0: Something else I'm taken by with uh, this, this particular documentary series is... The fact that there's no narrator. And I really like that. I think it's, um, I just, it sounds so naive to say it must be really hard to do it that way. But what was the choice of going with just letting the footage speak for itself? And what are the challenges of putting something like that together?
1: That's a really cool question. I think over the years that with narration, you're then writing a take or a point of view on the story that happened. And I think that with a story like this that has been so well covered, I thought that maybe I could do a a service to viewers by letting family members and uh, reporters and people that were actually there narrate what happened. And there could be some some insights gained because it's easy for a story this crazy to take on these tabloid-esque qualities. And really there was a, a moral seriousness, if you will, underneath this spectacle of the Manson family, and I think that it did. You're right; made it more challenging to not write narration. But I think that it's more immersive for the viewer to to hear from the people that were there. You know, a lot of times when you're hearing from Charlie, for example, you're hearing outtakes from when he was recording his music or um, pieces of different interviews, you know, that he did do over the years. And in other cases, some family members were very generous and, and, and sat with us, you know, over multiple days and did audio interviews and on-camera interviews in an attempt to really help people to, to understand. And in some cases, I think family members are willing to do it to atone for, for, for being in the family. And I think that, you know, some of them were victims as well. They're not the same kind of victims as the murder victims who were killed in such a horrible and brutal way, you know, and their families are, are still suffering today. But some of the family members were, were different types of victims. And I think um, it's, it's good to show the humanity of that as well.
0: Yeah, and it is amazingly immersive. I was just surprised by how, like, sucked in I got right away. I'm wondering, obviously Manson died in 2017, but if you could interview him, what kind of questions would you ask?
1: I would ask him why he was never willing to to answer a question. (laughs) You know, why was everything an abstraction and a game? And why did he have all this circular logic, you know? And you would say, you know, people would ask him, what do you think of this? And he would go, what do you think of this? You know, what do you think of this system? It's your system, not mine. You know, and why not? Did he never have the urge to to say something concrete before he died. As a filmmaker, I really want to know why he was incapable of answering questions.
0: No, I think uh, that's a really great question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm wondering, what did you learn by making this series?
1: It did surprise me that Charlie had a modicum of musical talent, and I could see how that would be appealing to people. I also think that there were a series of sliding doors, and if if some things had gone differently, you know, he had half a dozen opportunities to record his music. Why didn't he take it more seriously? Why was he unproducible? Was it because he really didn't want to be a rock star or was it because he was incapable of behaving any other way? Was he nervous? You know, the musicians I know can't do anything else but create music. You know, they're obsessed with it. They love it. It's their very lifeblood. And I'm not so sure that that was the case with him. But learning that he was a decent Musician was um, surprising. And also, even as a filmmaker, you you have to come to terms with you're not going to be able to answer every question. I can't 51 years later get to the one grain of truth. And I had to be comfortable with the fact that the puzzle pieces don't always fit.
0: Obviously, a lot of people are obsessed with Charles Manson and that story, but the name of our podcast is I'm So Obsessed. Okay, this is a horrible segue. I'm so obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> I got you to laugh. Okay, that's enough of a break. Uh, but seriously, our podcast is called I'm So Obsessed. And I'm curious, Leslie, what are you currently so obsessed with?
1: My husband is, like many men right now, with stay at home, is obsessed with uh, making bread.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sourdough, let me guess. No, 100% no. rye. Oh wow!
1: Yes, very dense, dark rye bread, and it's um, it's fantastic. Yeah, but I am I am truly stumped, and that rarely happens. I will tell you, um, there have been some things that I'm not normally a binge watcher, and um, the second season of Hannah on Amazon Prime, I was obsessed. I watched all eight episodes in a very, um, you know, in terms of a pop culture reference in a very short amount of time. And I think the filmmaking in that series is just incredible. I think it's, it's very, very well shot and the acting is, is really top notch. So that's my, that's my pop culture obsession at the moment (laughs) is, um, is Hannah. And then my other obsession um, at the moment is uh, wolves. I've been reading a lot about the reintroduction to um, Yellowstone of the wolves, but um, how there continues to kind of be this fight about do we need to protect our, our cattle and sheep from wolves or do we need to allow wolves um, to roam free and the importance of the wolves in the ecosystem and the people that are pro and con, I mean, to me, it's clear. We, they're, they're apex predators and they're a keystone species. We absolutely have to protect them. But you get people that are on all sides of this issue that say the wackiest thing. So I'm kind of obsessed with wolf politics at the moment.
0: <laughs> That's fair. I mean, um, it's interesting you bring that up because one of my questions for you was, it does go back to Hel- Helter Skelter just a little bit, is you have a history of making, like uh, Code Girl, Uh, about uh, girls coding in high school, the Technovation Challenge, Uh, Watson that follows the eco activist Paul Watson, Um, also producing stuff like Inconvenient Truth and Waiting for Superman, which seemed very kind of, I don't know, I want to say issue based or activist based. How do you swing from that to something like Charlie Manson?
1: Yeah, that's a great question because it's definitely not what I normally do. But, <laughs> but I, I wanted to go on this dig to find out why people are obsessed with Charles Manson and the family because I didn't understand it. Um, and it's not just a handful of people. It's a huge you know, segment of people that want to know why. And I set out to sort of answer that for myself and to see, you know... Um, Is it because there are no black and white answers? Is it because you wonder how um, he could have all of these followers that, you know, at first glance seem to be unquestioningly loyal? Is it because, you know, people say that he was the dark face of the hippie movement, yet I think it's a combination of things. I think it's because the crimes didn't have motives. The people that were killed were well known, some of them, and famous, it was supposed to be this wonderful open period of the late 60s, and you were supposed to welcome people with open arms. And along comes this little guy that failed at everything but fooled a lot of people.
0: I'm just rather to sit in for a second and let that resonate. Um, because <laughs> I, I don't have anything to say to that. No, I do actually. But I, I cause other uh, I guess another thing I want to ask you is, You've produced docs like Waiting for Superman and Inconvenient Truth, and those came out years ago, but when you see what's happening today socially, culturally, and politically, do you see like this is kind of some of that story that you were telling back then, like the consequence of that, or do you see a, a hopefulness still with some of those topics?
1: I think it's hard to remain hopeful when, you know, in 2005 and and Inconvenient Truth came out in 2006, we were out there sounding the alarm and saying, like, we have 10 years to turn it around, you know. But I think, you know, through that film and the work of of films before and after that and many amazing journalists, um, people are turning it around. On the one hand, you know, you still have the arch villain oil and gas companies and those kinds of things, but they even they recognize that we're beyond peak oil and it's better for everybody, whether it's from an anthropological perspective or whether it's clean air or whether it's health or whether it's their bottom line. You know, renewable energy is now at the point where it's cheaper. Why should we be secretly poisoning the water? Why should we do all of these things? So when I see that, I have hope when I think about like genetically modified food and pesticides and things like that, I get really unhopeful.
0: And and I wonder too, like you have such like a diverse background when it comes to documentary, both producing, directing. What did you want to be when you were a kid?
1: I wanted to run a fast food vegetarian chain. (laughs) Really? (laughs) I mean, yeah, I I went to, in college, I, I, I was part of the business school and I was in an entrepreneur program and, you know, that's, that's what I was going to do. And I thought, you know, you know, you should be able to get like these drive-through vegetarian, you know, treats that weren't, that weren't hamburgers and, and, and all of that. And, um, I started working on student films and, um, you know, it wasn't clear to me that being a filmmaker, um, was a career, you know, initially, And then once I started working on these things, I I, there was no way that I could that I could do anything else. You know, these these are now the only skills I have. I don't have (laughs) other practical skills.
0: (laughs) Well, and eating rye bread. Remember that, too. So,
1: yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) Um, And I'm also wondering, like with documentary specifically, uh, there's lots of flavors of that. But when do you think you started finding your voice with your films?
1: I think that there's traditional documentary filmmaking, which is a lot of cinema verite, following subjects around being patient and clever enough to to capture, you know, those moments as they occur. And I think, you know, some of the best documentaries, like an early documentary salesman is, is, is that was shot that way by the Maisels, um, that, that's one of my all-time favorite documentaries. But now I think as a society, you know, Documentaries aren't on the fringes anymore. There's so much fiction out there that people are craving real stories. And I see a lot of documentary filmmakers that are bringing traditional um, feature film storytelling tools to documentary filmmaking. So I, I think it's such an exciting genre right now. And I, I was very fortunate as a producer to work with, you know, some of the best documentary filmmakers out there. Um, and I produced commercials for a long time and, and, and worked with a lot of um, really great commercial directors that went on to direct incredible features. So I was able to kind of put on all these different hats and, you know, how would this person do it and how would that person do it? But it wasn't until I started directing, you know, seven, eight years ago that I really, really immersed myself in the in the process, you know, th- from a three hundred and sixty degree um, perspective, and and I'm still learning and I'm still experimenting.
0: I say I get to, uh, fortunate to talk to a lot of different artists and creators, and I don't think I've heard one of them not acknowledge that they're always still learning and creating. It's just uh, it's such a powerful part of being, I think, an artist and a creator.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the most most important skills you have is to listen.
0: So I want to wrap up here with a thing called pick one. And this just allows me to hit a couple bunch of different topics pretty fast. And I give you an option of one or two things and you pick one. doesn't mean it's better. doesn't mean one is worse. You can talk it out. In fact, that's more encouraged. Um, So the first one I have for you is producer or director. Director. How come?
1: Because I think for many years, I knocked myself out trying to gather all the tools to help directors realize their vision and I took great pleasure in that. And the directors I worked with, um, I was very fortunate. They let me be, you know, a big part of their creative process. Um, but now that I've crossed over to the dark side, <laughs> <laughs> um, I am, I have, I have lost some of those producing skills I would imagine. And I'm more immersed in the the creative ends of things and trying to mine, the best ways I can bring, you know, people's stories um, to life. And that's really just like producing was then that this is what's really exciting to me now.
0: Okay. The next one, filming on a boat or filming an interview in a chair.
1: Filming on a boat.
0: (laughs) Okay. I'm obviously referring to Watson and some uh, of those scenes is they just look like, how are you not throwing up all the time?
1: (laughs) I uh, did. um, (laughs) Despite wearing a, (laughs) a patch and everything else. I mean, most of the scenes, you know, that are on boats were, were shot by Sea Shepherd before Paul, um, Captain Paul Watson was um, arrested. Um, but we did go on um, a 10 day trip in Costa Rica um, on a research vessel to Cocos Island. We filmed the entire time and um, we filmed underwater and I was scuba diving and filming with all different hammerhead sharks and tiger sharks and black tip reef sharks and white tip reef sharks. It was that and, um, filming underwater in Tonga with humpback whales are, are two filming underwater has actually been the, the highlight of my film career in terms of like filming techniques. You know, we set out, I wanted to get underneath humpback whales and shoot them from underneath so that, that, that they would go with a story that Paul Watson tells about us all being on a spaceship. So I wanted them to look like spaceships. And that that was really an in, incredible um, experience.
0: When you approach something like that, um, does that come into it like, oh, this is very easy, even if you're, like, you're not into that day or you're not ready or something like that?
1: No, it, because um, some of the people had been interviewed many times. And so it takes a while to drill out their talking points and get to more heartfelt um, responses. So interviewing someone, especially um, for the length that I interviewed them, it's really trying. You know, I don't look at my notes. I look at them the entire time and my questions are always based off of something, you know, that they say to me. So you really have to to listen Um, to what they're saying. At the same time, you're editing in your head and you're like, Oh, I think I have to film that. And I have to do some original photography and maybe recreate what they're talking about. So the viewer can get that, you know, so you're constantly Mm -hmm. editing in your head. Um, So I actually, I really like interviewing.
0: This is great. And then uh, the last one's kind of more of a question, because if you think about the last like 15, 20 years, we've gone from shooting on film to digital cameras, and now there's even films being shot on phones. And I'm wondering, which one would you pick if you you, ha- you got to pick one to film with?
1: It depends on the situation. Um, you know, the, the downsides of film are the, the cost – and, you know, the weight, and you run out of film, you know, depending on the the lengths of your roles, but you know, you run out of film in in 11 minutes often, that would have been detrimental to something like this, because every time I would get into an emotional moment, interviewing someone, I would have had to say, hold on, you know, and we would have had to reload for something like this, it it wasn't the best medium. So I'd like to re answer that question by saying, you, you have to pick the medium that picks the story. But if there were no restrictions, I would I would choose film, um, you know, the range in film, the color you can draw out of it. The fact that it's that it's not too slick and perfect, I think, fits with our imperfect lives uh, a little bit better. That said, you know, I, I'm, I just did a short film that uh, that comes out on Monday of next week, and that was shot with iPhones and over Zoom. And it totally works, <laughs> you know, because it was done during the stay at home. So it, it the, the the medium has to fit the story.
0: Uh, Leslie, I have to say, I am just fascinated with your work, and I'm so glad you took some time to sit down and talk with us today.
1: Thank you, Patrick. I really appreciate being here. You're awesome.
0: I want to thank Leslie for chatting with me, and I want to thank you for listening. Helter Skelter American Myth is now available to watch on Epics or stream via the Epics Now app. If you enjoyed this interview, take a moment and subscribe to I'm So Obsessed on your favorite podcast app. And if you really like this episode, please rate it. And until next week, take care.